Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast. This is episode 28, and I'm your host, Jacob Skeppis. And I apologize for the little hiatus I've had on the podcast the last few months. It's been an extremely busy time for myself and my family, which has meant that I haven't had uh, the pleasure of interviewing as many uh, guests as I would have liked. But we're going to finish the year strong, and I'm very excited to welcome James Krieger onto the show today. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me, Jacob. And guys, I'm not going to give you a big rundown on James's background and go into all of those things. We're going to get straight into the nitty gritty of today's discussion. If you want to know all that, head to, this is going to test me now, James, weightology.net. Yep, that's it. Got it in one. I get that wrong every time. It's <laughs> weightology.net. Check James out. Um, super smart dude. Puts out a lot of really good content. And today we're going to be actually talking about his set volume Bible, which he recently posted uh, on his research review. And we're going to go into all things, uh, you know, volume as it relates to hypertrophy and resistance training. So, James, first, can you outline to the listeners, you know, what the purpose um, of this research review was and just give an overview of, you know, I guess, your meta-analysis of uh, set volume? So the purpose of the research review was um, I, I wanted to write the most complete uh, article that you could find anywhere on training volume. And I wanted to cover it from every angle. As far as training volume, when I say training volume, I mean per set volume, so number of sets. And I wanted to cover every angle of how set volume could possibly impact muscle hypertrophy. So I covered everything from the the research on the impact of set volume on muscle protein synthesis. I went into anabolic signaling. Uh, I went into satellite cell proliferation, uh, impact of set volume on that. Um, and then I went into the actual research on muscle gains. Um, and I even covered some of the research on strength gains because obviously there's some correlation between strength gains and muscle gains. It's not perfect. It's, it's actually a, a fairly rough correlation, but... Um, but there's still the things, there's information you can still kind of glean from some of that data. So, so I put it all together. Um, and basically there's a word, there's a word called consilience. And what consilience means is when you have, um, pieces of evidence from different, um, areas, um, if you can uh, if, if, if those show consilience as far as coming all kind of pointing to the same conclusion, then you can kind of get a pretty rough idea is, hey, this is a pretty good conclusion. I, I always like to use, I use the example of evolutionary theory. Um, the level of consilience there is, is off the charts. I mean, that's why we basically considered evolution a fact because you've got evidence from genetics. You've got evidence from the fossil record. You've got evidence from biology. You've got... Um, uh, I mean, there's so many different areas of science that all the evidence comes points together to the same conclusion. And so I tried to do the same thing with training volume. Obviously, it's not going to be quite to the same level because there's just too many unknowns still. But I wanted to at least kind of get an idea of where um, what's kind of the big picture. What's, you know, if, if I look at all these different forms of evidence, um, are they pointing to different conclusions or are they kind of all pointing to the same conclusion? That's kind of what was the driving force behind that article. And then finally I, I came up with some 
rough evidence-based guidelines on how people could, you know, structure their training programs, um, you know, based on all that evidence. So, yeah, I I sat down and read it over uh, a couple of hours because it is quite in depth, detailed, and yeah, very well thought out. And that's what we're going to get into today is you know breaking down um, your research without obviously giving the guys too much so that they uh, you know don't have to subscribe to weightology.net. Um, but when you were defining what is a set, you know, this is what a lot of people I've found, you know, in the big volume movement over the last couple of years have, have completely ignored. They just think that a set is a set, um, and they don't actually understand, you know, uh, the prerequisites that go into, you know, what we deem as a set contributing to total weekly volume, if that's how we're going to measure hypertrophy. Um, and you defined a set as moderate to high repetitions, approximately eight reps or more, um, to or near muscular failure. Can you explain to the listeners who may not have read your article um, why you didn't include lower rep work uh, below eight? Um, the reason I didn't include lower rep work is because um, when you when you're when you train with really low repetitions, um, the overall volume in terms of repetition volume is so low that it's not quite as good for hypertrophy, even if you take your sets to failure. And so, um, and actually, Brad Schoenfeld has a study out on that uh, not too long ago. He compared, I think it was um, three sets of three or three sets of four rep max to three sets of eight to ten. Um, so the number of sets was the same, number of hard sets, but the hypertrophy was much greater in the sets of eight to ten. So, so when your reps get too low, we can no longer consider a set a set, as far at least if we're talking in terms of hypertrophy. And so. Um, I um, mean, so that's why I defined any set as, you know, approximately eight reps, you know, maybe give or take a rep, um, eight reps or more. And, and really, when you look across the studies, that's typically what the, the typical rep ranges that have been used. So, so that's, why, um, that's why I defined a set that way. Awesome. Because if you hit seven reps, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. You just, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you spoke about... Uh, you know, failure and proximity to failure being important for eliciting hypertrophy. Um, and how close should uh, our sets be when we're counting them to our weekly volume um, to produce adaptations, considering, considering that if we hit uh, failure too frequently, um, that can, you know, really impact our total weekly volume that we, we're able to achieve? Yeah, so I, I generally consider probably anywhere from one to three reps short of failure, I think is a good target. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, there's some research out there that's showing that you get maximal motor unit recruitment once you hit about three reps short of failure. Um, and so, um, um, and then there's some other studies out there that showed uh, really no differences in muscle gains between training to failure and training, you know, probably just short of failure. Um, so, yeah, I say one to three reps short of failure um, uh, is a pretty good target. I mean, you don't want to stop too far short. I mean, for example, if it's a 10 rep max set and you stop at rep five, then that's stopping way too short. And the research shows that you're going to impair your gains when you do that. But if you stop at rep eight or nine um, on a 10 rep max set, you know, you should be good. And if anything, it may allow you to do a little bit more volume because, you know, you can really fatigue yourself with those that last grinding rep, last grinding rep or two, which all it's going to do is 
it affects your performance on subsequent sets and it may even carry over into your performance the next day especially if you're trying to train more frequently so yeah definitely and in terms of proximity failure so you mentioned one to three reps uh you know from mus momentary muscular failure um is there a difference with different intensities so if we're using 60 percent and above um, do we have the ability to stay a few reps shy, whereas if we're using 60% or below, um, do we have to take that closer to failure, if not fail, for that to be counted towards a set? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say with the real high rep stuff, I still think you, you're probably okay if you stop a few reps short. I mean, if it's a 25 rep max set and you stop at rep 23, I don't think those last two reps are really going to make you know that much of a difference. Um, I will say that you probably want the higher rep stuff. You probably want to push just a little bit harder um, than the lower rep stuff, just because with the high rep stuff, you you definitely need to have that fatigue set in to get maximal motor unit recruitment. You know, with the lower rep stuff, you know, an eight to ten rep max set, you can start getting maximal motor unit recruitment very early in the mm -hmm. set. But um, uh, but for a real high rep stuff, you know, twenty five reps, you know, let's say. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't think you have to push total to total failure, but, but you definitely, you know, it, it should be pretty challenging, you know? So, um, it, it, there needs to be more work in that area as far as, you know, the more higher rep stuff. Um, the, the, the tough thing about the higher rep stuff is like, and I've talked with Eric Helms about this, the, the, the what's really tough about real high rep stuff, um, is it's really hard to know whether you've really gone to failure or not. Mm. Um, it's really, it's a lot harder to gauge because, uh, just because they can be so painful, um, <laughs> especially like leg work. I mean, I mean, even just something like leg extensions, like high rep leg extensions, I mean, th those can really hurt bad when you start getting up to rep 21, 22, 23. Um, and, the thing is, you know, Eric has told me, you know, when they do research studies on that, you know, they've got people encouraging you and a lot of people think that think they're done. If they got people encouraging them, they can actually get a few more reps of those high rep stuff. But it's just like sometimes it just becomes so painful that, you know, you just end up quitting. So uh, um, so that's that's one of the detriments of real high rep stuff. You know, um, that's why I tend to favor at least for compound movements, I would say I tend to more favor the the more moderate rep range. Yeah. Um, I think it's just easier to push yourself a little bit, but also kind of know when you're, you know, a, few, a rep or two shy of failure. And then for, you know, then the isolation stuff, you know, you can, you know, especially upper body isolation stuff. Yeah, you can do your 25 rep max sets and whatever, and it's not that big of a deal. But uh, um, so. Awesome. And final thing on our definition for what can be deemed a set uh, that attributes to our you know, total weekly volume um, is which muscle group is the prime mover uh, in that exercise. So can you outline to the listeners uh, what you meant by this in uh, your research review um, and if this influenced your findings in any meaningful way? Yeah, so... Um, so you know, it becomes tough because, like, for example, if you think of a bench press, you know, a lot of people think of a bench press as a chest exercise, but the triceps are really a, also a prime mover in that, in a bench press. And so, you know, really, in that case, you really want to, I mean, that would count as a tricep movement. Um, and so that's kind of how I define sets is like, 
Um, is it essentially acting as some type of prime mover in the exercise? Then it counts as a set for that particular muscle group. So, you know, a bench press, obviously your prime movers are your, are your chest, your triceps, and also your anterior deltoids. Those are very heavily involved um, in a bench press. So, so that would, you could count a set of a bench press as one set for chest, one set for triceps, and one set for anterior deltoids, really. Um, uh, and so that's kind of how I defined it in, in the research. There's not enough data to, you know, let's say compare, let's say if I just did purely arm only work, tricep work to, um, to compound movements, there's not enough data to, uh, to really tease out um, whether, you know, it's better to do isolation work or not. Um, there's been very just few studies on that. Um, I, I will say that um, theoretically there is a benefit to using more than one exercise for a particular muscle group, um, especially if that particular muscle group has more than one function. Um, so, for example, we think of the triceps. Um, you know, if you're doing pressing movements, um, you know, there's only one head of the price triceps is really heavily involved in that. And you really need to do some overhead type, you know, um, isolation movement um, to uh, uh, stretch out the long head. And get, so it's like, so it depends on, um, it depends on the structure of the muscle and everything too. But, uh, but that's kind of how I counted a set in, in that particular review. And it makes things a lot uh, easier, doesn't it? And less laborious if we have, you know, clear guidelines, I guess, as to what counts as a set for a muscle group, you know, when it is the prime mover, Otherwise, it just gets too hard trying to, you know, keep track of all your working sets for all your muscle groups. So I think that just makes sense from a practical standpoint. Yeah. And you first delved into a lot of the, the mechanisms behind hypertrophy and set volumes influence on those, which were muscle protein synthesis, anabolic signaling, and satellite cell uh, proliferation, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so let's talk about those individually. So set volume... And muscle protein synthesis, you reviewed three studies uh, from memory, and two of those were human, one was rodent. And what was the general consensus uh, there in you know, set volume, eliciting change in protein synthesis, and were there any limitations to the studies? Yeah, so the general consensus is that um, more is better, but we don't know where the upper limit is as far as protein synthesis. Um, uh, really the only good study is, uh, one by Bird and colleagues where they compared three sets of leg extensions to one set. Um, and they found a much greater protein synthesis response over the next, um, over the next day, day and a half, um, compared to one set. Um, but that doesn't tell us anything about, well, what if you did five sets or six sets or whatever? Um, that's the really only good study. Yeah. There's a rodent study that just came out. Um, I even reviewed it too um, in my research, one of my research reviews. Uh, the problem with that, um, what they considered a set, really it doesn't necessarily translate it into a human set. Um, you know, they found protein synthesis to plateau off around, I think it was like three to five sets, but this was like electrical stimulation. It's not like these weren't these rats weren't resistance training, and so it, it it's not necessarily applicable. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing that data can tell us is, yeah, there, there's probably a plateau in the response at some point, but we don't know where that is in humans. Um, and then there was a third study where they compared three and six sets, but the problem is the sets weren't taken to failure. And so 
um, I don't consider that study really all that usable um, in trying to determine where an up, uh, where a limit might be. So there definitely needs to be more work in that area. All I can say is data does seem to indicate multiple sets are better than single sets, mm -hmm. but how many in a single session, you know, before the before you get a point of diminishing returns, I don't know. I can't say. So. Um, uh, I may update the article. I have some ideas. I may uh, look at some, or actually, when I'm you know when I do my training frequency one, um, I may piece together some protein synthesis studies that didn't really look at volume, but you know there's a protein synthesis study that used eight sets, and then there's a protein synthesis one that used four sets. Um, I may just kind of look at the overall responses. It, you can't necessarily compare across studies. It's not the best thing, but um, I don't know. I still might want to see if there's any any rough ideas I might get from that, but, uh, but that's something for a future. So, so all I can say is multiple sets are better than single sets in a single session as far as your protein synthesis response, but who knows where that upper limit lies. Awesome. And in terms of anabolic signaling, um, in your, your review, um, you looked specifically at an anabolic signal. I'm not even going to try and say it. I'm not a scientist. P7, yeah, P706SK yeah, phosphorylation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Um, and overall, the anabolic signaling data is showing that more is better, like you were mentioning with the muscle protein synthesis. But obviously, there's only so much we can do before exceeding what we can recover from. Now, I know you just alluded to that there isn't any idea as to where that upper limit lies, but what is your general thoughts on you know anabolic signaling before we do see that diminishing returns is it different to muscle protein synthesis um do we have any information about that unfortunately we don't i mean right now the data just shows the more you do the more anabolic signaling you get but anabolic signaling doesn't always translate into actual muscle protein synthesis so that needs to be remembered um and then you know some of that anabolic signaling may also just be a response to like say repair muscle damage and not necessarily go to towards muscle growth. So, so all I can say is from a from an anabolic signaling standpoint, all the data indicates the more you do, the more anabolic signal you're going to get in a single session. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the more you do in a single session, you know, the better results you're going to get. You know. Um, because, like I said, I mean, chances are the protein synthesis response is going to plateau off at some point. Mm -hmm. But also there's just a fatigue factor. Um, you know, you can do 30 sets in a session, but then it's going to take you so long to recover from. Um, yeah, who cares how much anabolic signaling you stimulated? Yeah. It's, um, it, you know, again, there's a point of diminishing returns there. So, so that's the limitation of trying to use anabolic signaling. Um, like I said, all we can say is we know more is better, but who knows where the, the upper limit lies. That's why you got to, that's why you got to turn to actual training studies. So, and that's what we'll get to, uh, in just a second, but the final, uh, mechanistic, uh, research that you looked at was satellite cells. Can you give the guys who may not be familiar with what satellite cells, uh, you know, I guess are responsible for in the muscle building process? Um, give them a rundown as to what that is and then what your research found, you know, pertaining to them. Yeah, so satellite cells are um, basically what, um, if you think of all the cells in your body, all the cells have a nucleus, you know, and that contains all the genetic material for every cell and things like that. Well, the interesting thing about muscle cells, muscle cells are, um, have multiple nuclei. So they, so each muscle cell doesn't just have one nucleus, it has multiple ones. 
And when a muscle cell grows, um, it can only grow to a certain point to, until that it needs to actually, it needs more nucleus to even get bigger. Um, and so that's where satellite cells um, come in. So basically satellite cells are like these dormant cells that will, if a muscle cell needs to grow, the, the satellite cells will donate their nuclei to that muscle cell so that it could, so it basically allows it to grow bigger and get, you know, gives it extra genetic material really. Um, and, and so there's, you know, so they play a pretty good, uh, uh, important role in hypertrophy. Um, and so, um, there's not a lot of data, but there is one study that, sh that showed that, you know, double digit weekly sets in the legs were better than single digit weekly sets in the legs for, um, uh, for satellite cell, um, activity. So, um, uh, so that's, you know, what that study hints at at least, you know, getting into the double digit weekly sets. Um, awesome. And from there, you obviously went on to look at the applied research and, you know, the studies that actually measure hypertrophy in people who are following resistance training programs. And you reviewed uh, quite a number of applied studies um, and mentioned that sample size was a key factor um, that has led to varied results in comparing set volume and its effects on muscle growth. So can you explain to listeners why this is and why if they are reading research and, you know, looking at these kind of research reviews that this is an important limitation they should understand? Yeah, so um, so basically it comes like this. Um, changes in muscle size are very small. I mean, anyone who trains knows that, it, that it's hard to build muscle and it takes a long time to build any significant amount. Um, and what that means is if I'm a scientist trying to measure changes in muscle size, um, you know, the changes are so small that um, if I don't have a lot of people in my study, just the differences between people can actually drown out the actual changes in size themselves. Um, and so it can be really difficult if, if I got two groups of people and one group's on a low volume program and one group's on a high volume program and I want to see, okay, is the high volume program better for muscle growth? Um, the problem is the changes in muscle growth are so small is that even if the, let's say the high volume group had double the muscle growth of the low volume group, um, there's so much genetic variance between different people and how they respond that it could even drown out that those differences. Um, and so, you know, ideally you, you need really large sample sizes, you know, 50 people per group, hundred people per group. That's just, that just doesn't happen in exercise science research. You know, I mean, you usually got like maybe 10 people per group, something like that. Um, and so that's a limited. So what happens is, you know, you could have 10, 10 studies, comparing a high volume to a low volume program. And what will happen is only, even if the high volume program is better, only a portion of those studies will actually find what we would call a statistically significant difference. And the other ones will all declare no difference because there's just too much variance between how people, different people respond to the same training program um, that ends up drowning out those small changes in muscle size. So, um, and that's even if you want to detect double the muscle gains. Uh, so that's a major limitation of resistance training research. And so that's why, you know, Brad, uh, Schoenfeld and I, and Dan Ogborn collaborated on a meta-analysis, um, where we basically pulled a bunch of studies together, um, to try to see what the impact of volume was because, you know, any one study on its own maybe doesn't tell you enough, but if you 
group all the studies together, it can give you an idea of what the overall trend is. And, and so that's kind of, um, you know, why we did our meta-analysis. And we did, you know, we found an, a, a, an impact of training volume on hypertrophy um, in that meta-analysis. So, and specifically it was, Basically, double-digit weekly sets seem to be optimal, the best for hypertrophy, you know. Um, uh, so that would be, you know, 10 sets or more per week, uh, total per week. We're obviously better than, you know, doing, you know, five or six weekly sets per muscle group. So, um, Awesome. And in those uh, meta-analysis, um, for those who are unfamiliar with scientific jargon, you know, as James mentioned, you know, it's just a study of all the studies um, done on a certain topic and you did one in 2010 and also in 2016 um, yeah. and you stated that the 2016 was you know, superior I guess to 2010. Can you discuss to you know, the guys what the key differences were between uh, the second and the first meta-analysis and um, the findings uh, from the first one to the second one if they changed um, and how they did change? Yeah, so um, the big, the one big difference is just the number of studies. The first one only had eight studies in it. Um, this one had 15 studies. So we almost doubled the number of studies, um, which is important. Um, and then the second thing is in the first one, I looked at sets per exercise. Um, but the problem with sets per exercise is you could do multiple exercises per muscle group and, and it doesn't necessarily tell you how much volume you're doing per muscle group. If you do look at sets per exercise, um, and so, you know, so we looked at weekly volume in the second one, which is, you know, a, a better indicator and also has, it makes it easier to apply to the results to your training, you know, versus when you're looking at sets per exercise. But the findings were similar across both studies. I mean, they basically, there was a dose response um, as you increase your training volume, weekly volume, um, there was an increase in size gains. Um, unfortunately there's not enough research with really high volumes to suggest, to really get an idea of, well, you know, where, at what point does it become too much? You know, um, all we know is overall, you know, a rough idea is that double digit weekly sets definitely seem to be better than doing single digit weekly sets or, you know, your low volume, you know, HIT programs, stuff like that, uh, are not going to be as good for hypertrophy. doesn't mean you won't get any gains from those. Um, even in our analysis, even the low volume programs, um, you know, had an average weekly or not weekly change, an average change of, you know, maybe about 5% change in muscle thickness. So you still, they still achieved gains, but, but the percentage gain in muscle thickness in the double digit weekly sets was something like, like eight point set. It was almost 9%. So, so it was, you know, quite a bit more. You know, nearly double the gains. Um, not quite double the gains, but but close to it. So, awesome. I guess that's so important for listeners to, you know, bear in mind here is that although you've said that more is better, everyone will sort of latch on to that and sort of forget the caveat to that to a point. Um, yeah. And yeah, there is a ceiling, you know, to which you can continually adapt and progress. Um, before you start, you know, detraining and, you know, becoming overreach and all these kind of things. So really important to remember, guys. And with your uh, meta-analysis, you know, there were a number of um, limitations that you said have, you know, come to light uh, when we're looking at set volume and hypertrophy and that most of the studies are done in untrained subjects. Yeah. And so 
can you give us a bit of a background as to you know what this means, why in fact the researchers would prefer to study hypertrophy on untrained people versus trained, and then uh, what the research tells us about trained populations? <clears throat> so yeah, there's been very few studies on trained subjects. I mean, most of the studies in our analysis were on untrained subjects. And one of the reasons for that is number one, it's just harder to get trained subjects to do a study. A lot, sometimes people just don't want to deviate from their normal training programs to be, participate in research. Um, you know, the, the people are more serious about it. So it's harder to get trained subjects. Um, um, and then also just from a funding perspective, you know, a lot of the research funding on muscle hypertrophy is more based on the need to look at sarcopenia and aging and things like that. And so those populations are typically going to be untrained. And, and uh, there was a good chunk of studies in our analysis that involved um, older people, you know, older untrained people. Um, but what's interesting is even with the older untrained people, there, there seems to be a volume effect there too. Um, so, um, you know, I would... It, there's only there was only a few studies in our analysis that involve trained subjects, unfortunately. Um, right now, Brad Schoenfeld is running a study now on trained subjects and training volume. Um, he's running the first cohort of subjects this semester, so he should be finishing up that cohort pretty soon. And then I think he's running another cohort start of next semester. Um, and I'm going to be analyzing the data for that study, you know, once the data comes in. So that'll be really that'll be a really needed piece of literature um, because he's looking at trained subjects and he's doing actually three different levels of volume, um, which will be really important. Um, so um, uh, so that'll be an important addition to the literature. But overall, though, the data would suggest that there seems to be a volume of a dose response effect in both untrained and trained subjects. Um, I would say with trained subjects, you probably do need to get a little bit more volume um, to continue to see gains just because, you know, um, because you just adapt to the stimulus, you know, and so you, you have to apply more stimulus to get more adaptation, you know, continue to try to see adaptation. So awesome. And to give the guys um, the lowdown um, on all your efforts in, you know, understanding the research as it relates to set volume and hypertrophy, what is the general consensus in terms of number of sets? I know you've mentioned double digits, but run us through the uh, you know the key points, I guess, from your research review, James. So, so overall, yeah, I, I in general, I would consider um, a good guideline to start with um, is is a weekly volume in the teens. So that could be you know twelve to eighteen, you know, or eleven to nineteen, somewhere around that. Um, most of the data suggests that that range seems to um, give the best gains on average. Um, now, that doesn't mean that's going to be true for every individual. Some people may, that may be too much volume for them and they got to do less. Some people that may not be enough volume, you know, there's, there's quite an individual response. And so, um, so people have to experiment what levels of volume tend to they give them the best gains. Um, but that's a good rough place to start from, you know, you know, that those weekly volume in the teens, and then you can kind of go from there, uh, uh, based on how you respond. So awesome. And in terms of what we need more of moving forward, we obviously need those studies in trained populations, like we we're just discussing. Uh, is there anything that you think that, you know, 
is a missing piece to the uh, set volume and hypertrophy puzzle that you know we could find a lot of value of um, in sorry moving forward. Yeah, so I would say a couple things. I mean, I, I think there needs to be more dose response studies like like Brad is running right now with, with multiple levels of volume. Because um, a lot of the studies will compare just two different levels of volume. I, like, there's a lot of studies that just compare one set per exercise to three sets per exercise, you know. And there's a ton of studies like that. But we need more studies that, that grade the volume, you know. Um, you know, it could be a low, medium, and high volume, you know, program. Yeah. Uh, so we need more research on that. We need more research on the really high volumes to kind of determine where, where does it become too much, yeah. you know, for most people. Um, so, you know, we definitely need more data on that. I would like to see just more protein synthesis data looking at volume, you know, volume in a single session or even weekly volume. Um, there's, there's new techniques for measuring muscle protein synthesis now. It's uh, deuterium, um, deuterium oxide or something like that. I don't know all the, the details behind it, but it's a cool way to look at muscle protein synthesis over, over a time period, like a week rather than just, you know, single snapshots. Right. And, and so there's more research coming out using that technique. Um, and I would love to see some research using that technique and looking at training volume. Um, that would be really cool, I think. Uh, um, and, then, and then one area I would love to see is, uh, you know, is there a benefit to, for example, cycling your training volume as far as, you know, um, you know, I think of the Renaissance periodization style method, you know, Mike, as you tell, you know, they like to go from, from a low volume to a progressing to a high volume and then backing back down to a low volume and, and, uh, and, and kind of going through those cycles. So, you know, the question is, you know, is there any benefit to that versus just, you know, keeping a certain constant volume? And I think, you know, that would be really interesting to see as well. Um, you know, um, so, so I think those are some areas that, that definitely need more work. So, awesome, and hopefully, yeah, we can start to slowly piece together more and more information about, uh, yeah, everything we need to know for muscle hypertrophy. But I think we're probably a few years off. Would you agree, James? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Anyway, well, guys, that's uh, what I had in store for you all today uh, with James. Like I said, make sure that you uh, sign up to Weightology.net. James puts out a truckload of weekly content that uh, is super beneficial. I found useful over all the years that I've been uh, lifting and coaching, and I highly recommend uh, subscribing to. More importantly, get the uh, study, um, the sorry, the vo set volume Bible that he's just put out, which is absolutely brilliant. I'll put a link in the description box to all that, guys. Um, but James, thank you very much for coming on. I hope you uh, have many gains in the near future and yeah, look forward to reading more of your work and that uh, frequency Bible that you're going to be putting out. Yep, yep, that, that's the next one. So yeah, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So, Not a problem, James. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks for, thanks Thank for you. your time.